selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Lockdown, cancel culture, Megxit. We're cursed to live in interesting times. Thankfully, Spiked is here to help you make sense of it all and to push back against the tide of misanthropy, authoritarianism, and identity politics. But to do that, we need your help. We rely on donations from readers and listeners like yourself to keep our content free and available to all. One-off donations are hugely appreciated, but monthly donations are even better. They allow us to plan for the future and to grow. Even £5 per month is a huge help. So, start donating today by going to spikes-online.com and clicking the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spikes-online.com and the red donate button. Now, onto the Spikes podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spikes podcast. This week we'll be devoting the show to the Meghan, Harry and Oprah soap opera. So as ever, I'm joined by Tom Slater. Hello. And Ella Whelan. Hi. But we also have some extra special guests on to speak their truths. So we're delighted to also be joined by Freddie Gray, editor of Spectator USA, and Dr. Lisa McKenzie. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex have accused the royal family of failing to protect them. I just didn't want to be alive anymore. I went to a very dark place as well. I didn't have anyone to turn to. Public opinion on the differences between the two camps is deeply divided. Concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. What? This is a two-hour trash-a-thon of everything the Queen has worked so hard for. Earlier this week, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex sat down for an explosive two-hour interview with Oprah Winfrey. The pair told Oprah that the pressures of royal life and the constant glare of the media spotlight had led Meghan to contemplate suicide. There were allegations of racism against the royal family. An unnamed senior royal is said to have been concerned about the skin colour of the couple's first child. It was also claimed that Archie was denied the titles and protections he was owed as a royal. Freddie, you're probably the most sympathetic to the monarchy of any of us talking right now, but you predicted that this would all go south at the time of Harry and Meghan's wedding. So what did you make of the interview itself? Well, it's very rare that I feel like I got something right. 
But I think <laughs> I did get it right because I wrote a piece for the Spectator in 2017. Made in Windsor was the was the cover, and it was about how they were sort of descending into a reality TV show. And the trigger for the piece was the Heads Together campaign, which a lot of people got very excited about because the younger royals started talking about mental health because they decided this was a good issue for them to get sort of stuck into. And a lot of sort of suck-ups and like royal hangers-on got very excited about it and said that, you know, this is very exciting because they're rebranding for a younger generation, younger people are interested in mental health and stuff. And I think the people behind it thought they were being very clever. And I think even the younger royals got excited, this idea that they were they were venturing out on their own. The old guard was moving on. They were becoming the kind of dynamic force of the monarchy. And it involved these ridiculous things like Prince William doing a video chat with Lady Gaga, in which they talked about their, their struggles with mental health and things like that. Clearly, some people in the royal family decided this was not really working and it's not actually what the royal family should be doing. And they, sort of, they moved back from it. But I think Meghan and Harry were like, no, this is how we can be royals, is we can just gas on about our feelings and turn all TV appearances into sort of psychiatric counselling sessions. And I think that's that, that's what's happened. They've, they couldn't do it within the structures of the monarchy. So there was Megxit, they left, and now they're doing it from across the Atlantic. And the soap opera is just becoming a, a, a sort of more Americanized reality TV show. You know, Lisa, there was a lot of talk from both of them about, you know, how much they've suffered over the last few years. I mean, did you have any sympathy? Yeah, my heart was bleeding <laughs> desperately, absolutely in floods of tears at their uh, their plight of having to move to Santa Barbara and raising their child without being a prince. Absolutely gutted for them. <laughs> no, realistically, I'm looking at this in a completely different way. The royal family, for me, has always represented something about British identity that I have not connected with ever. And I think that's something about being a working class woman from a mining community, that Britishness that the royal family sort of represents is something that I don't have never bought into. And so the younger royals, the Meghan and Harry and the Will and What's the Face and the ugly daughters. I don't see them as anything new or anything different. I see them as just another extension of another institution, British institution, which is about the symbolism of holding on to a deeply damaging class system. And that's how I've always looked at this. So I'm looking at this, you know, from a much wider view. Do I care about what's his name, Archie, not being a prince? No, I'm not interested at all. I watched the interview for about 10 minutes before I had to switch it off because I was going to smash the telly up and I can't afford a new telly so I have watched it since from a sociological point of view but rather than get, get engaged with the circus, you know, have they said this and who said this and who's the member of the royal family that said this I'm trying to think sociologically about what does all this mean and I think looking from recent history is when you get seemingly lots of unconnected political and social issues that come together that something is happening in society and i think the, the Meghan and harry thing is a, a symbolizing a change a social change a social and political change rather than something about their relationship with their in-laws tom what do you think about that i mean in a sense is it not just the same old royals but with 
you know, this kind of new woke mental health kind of skin, I guess. Yes, in a sense. But I also think it's replacing one kind of aristocracy with another, or at least it's the kind of liberal establishment and the press picking a side in that kind of battle. Because the thing about Harry and Meghan is the reason they left the royal family is that they were unable to be what they wanted to be, which was somewhere between being a kind of pound shop Obama's or upmarket Kardashians. That's kind of where they wanted to be kind of part of that kind of NGO circuit, speaking about themselves, speaking about important issues, elevating themselves in the process. And that's the kind of new establishment, really. It's the Mm. people who run many of our institutions. It's the people who certainly set the terms of kind of our cultural discussion and all the rest of it. And I think what we saw, apart from the kind of particular clash between the houses of Sussex and Windsor itself, was the kind of cementing of that kind of new aristocracy, if you like, and the rallying of support around them from various sections of the media, from various different people in politics, the way you saw kind of politics polarise around it to a certain extent in the UK, I think just represents that tension, is that you have this new establishment kind of summed up in the figures of, of Harry and Meghan, And that's why, on the one hand, the circus, as as Lisa was describing it, is ridiculous. It does matter a lot because it seems to represent shifts, which in my view are entirely negative. As much as I dislike the monarchy, entirely negative. You've got really the ratcheting up of the culture war, the ratcheting up of press censorship. You know, we've seen two scalps so far in the relationships. I'm not really that bothered about Piers Morgan, but I think the message this sends in general in terms of being sceptical about people when they claim a mantle of victim is quite concerning. And also just this set of identity politics that has now been foisted upon all of us, which is incredibly divisive, but also incredibly elitist, as we've seen. Because you've got figures like Harry and Meghan basically claiming a sort of halo on the back of how put upon they are, despite their remarkable privilege. So it is both incredibly stupid and incredibly important at the same time, it feels like. Yeah. Ella, what's your thoughts? A lot of formerly respectable Republicans have been framing Harry and Meghan as the new challenge to the monarchy as a kind of a new a new means for republicans to look at the monarchy differently i mean i won't name names but someone did tweet i hope jokingly that what cromwell started marco will finish <laughs> which just is ludicrous but it made me think about how how little diversion from the idea that encompasses the royals harry and meghan are i mean apart from the fact that they keep you know, sucking up to the queen, but from anything else, and they constantly are saying the queen is brilliant, the queen is great. It's just uh, imagine Charles and William that they've got a problem with. But if you look at the way in which, in particular, Meghan demands the kind of respect and irreverence that the monarchy does, hates the idea that the oikish unwashed would have opinions about her, very hostile to the press in the same, you know, anyone who's watched The Crown knows in the same way that the royals are, is secretive in terms of, you know, one of the most sort of shocking things I thought out of that pantomime of an interview was that Meghan makes quite a serious claim of racism against the member of the royal family and refuses to give any details as to what was said or who said it. And, you know, Oprah utterly failed as a journalist to push her on that. And most importantly, this real sense of entitlement, which is perhaps unsurprising, and maybe I'm being a bit naive, she is a celebrity and grew up in LA and you know, comes from that kind of world. But the most important thing in all of this is that, like with any discussion about the royals and these new set of sort of half-celebrity, half-duchess ex-royals, is that the underlying sentiment is that the public are this disgusting mass who really these very entitled people shouldn't have to deal with, apart from when they want to. So, you know, when Prince Charles 
wants to go and shake hands of young black guys and look good. He does. When Megan wants to get press attention for her new range of oat lattes, she will. But at all other times, we're meant to step back, stay quiet and not have an opinion about it. And so, you know, for me, they reinvigorate my hatred of the monarchy in a way in which I think lots of others are missing because they're not a break from it. They are actually just the kind of regurgitation, reincarnation of all the anti-democratic and elitist fundamental factors of the monarchy. If you had a black king, if you had a diverse monarchy, if you had a gay prince, it wouldn't make any difference. It's fundamentally misunderstanding the nature of what it is the problem of the monarchy is. Spikes is producing more content than ever. And I know you want to keep up with all the fantastic articles, essays, podcasts, and interviews that we're publishing every day. If you never want to miss anything we do, make sure you sign up to our daily newsletter. It's called Today on Spiked. Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all of Spiked's content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spike team, usually Tom Slater or myself. To get all of that, just go to spikes-online.com forward slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked now. Now, back to the Spikes podcast. Ella, you've brought up the question of the press. I mean, they've famously, you know, been launching lawsuits left, right and centre against against the British press. Early on, you know, Prince Harry accusing the press of having kind of colonial undertones in its coverage of, of Meghan. I mean, Freddie, I wonder if you could talk a bit about the US press. There does seem to be a difference in how this interview was received on both sides of the Atlantic. I mean, I've seen some polling that suggests that Americans are much more sympathetic to the Markles. The Brits are much more sympathetic to the Windsors, if anyone. I mean, what's it been like, you know, from the US angle? I think as Brits, we should all be aware of our weird neuroses when it comes to Americans and the royal family, because we have very polar reactions to Americans and the royal. We, we either think that they spend all their time adoring the royal family and that they're fascinated by the sort of mystique and just the oldness of it, or we swing the other way and we go, oh, they hate us, you know, they're egalitarian, they don't understand Britain, they think we're all racist and patriarchal. And we sort of, it's self-hatred and self, self-loving self all, all wrapped up into one. And, and the point is, is really for Americans, it's a massive country with a very complex media ecosystem. It's a relatively minor story. I mean, it's obviously, it's, it's big this week because it's a big celebrity story in a, in a very boring time. But it's not that interesting. I think Oprah got 19 million views on the night. You know, the Super Bowl gets 98 million views. Mm. So it's not that interesting. And and I think this sort of idea that Americans suddenly all think we're racist because there's lots of people on talk shows saying what a, what a great opportunity it was for Britain to become a multicultural country and that we'd failed somehow. I just, most Americans don't think like that. I mean, the, the Americans I've spoken to, I mean, I had an email from a, a woman who used to work for the Trump administration who said, I hope Her Majesty tears them a new one. I mean, it's like gossipy banter for most Americans. It's not It's not of great interest to them. And Lisa, I mean, just thinking about this kind of idea about the royals, as, especially Meghan embodying, you know, potentially multicultural Britain. I think a lot of people were excited about that when they first got married. But there seems to be a great shock that there might be a racist in the royal family. I mean, it does, <laughs> was that anything you found remotely surprising? Is there a racist in the royal family? Of course. It's a deep 
British institution based on supremacy of them and everything that they, they mean. So, of course, there are racist. You know, I'm sounding like I'm on Novara Media now. <laughs> but, you know, it is an institutionally racist organisation. Of course it is. It's elitist. The Queen steps out of her house and she's wearing something that's been stolen from somewhere else or somebody else. So, of course, you know, none of this has been a secret. The press has regularly reported on racism in the palace and amongst the royal family. You know, they've even reported on Prince Harry's racism when he was calling his fellow comrades in the British Army ragads. So, you know, his own racism has been reported in the press. So I don't think there's anything new here. For me, the new thing is how people have reacted to it. You know, of course, Prince Harry's had to apologise for racism in the past. Prince Philip has never apologised for any racism ever. Why should he? But for me, I think it's, it's symbolic of the two countries, the USA, and I think, as Freddie's just said, this sort of neurosis that's happening in both countries, actually probably around the world, which is about class. And for me, it's about a sort of deep fear that the middle class are not getting their just desserts. You know, the middle class are not getting the secure and safe lives that they have been promised. And I think political tectonic plates are shifting. I've had a real think about this, that this situation with Meghan and Harry is connected to Brexit. It's connected to Trump, the fear of Trump returning. You know, how do we cement liberal ideas in society? Because, God, we don't want Trump to come back. The British institutional elite, terrified that Brexit is here and what does that mean for them? And I think these things are political. You know, let's not forget that Meghan and Harry are surrounded by strong and powerful political ideas and people that are all using this. I start to think about the First World War and what happened the last time when the royal family fell out with themselves. You know, and millions of people died because cousins felt that Queen Victoria liked one better than the other. And again, it wasn't about the family falling out. It was about the political and power relationships about all of those things. And the British monarchy is still embedded in those institutions. I just want to say, Lisa, I think that's a really interesting point about that. I don't know if you saw the article in Axios, but I think it's called someone called Felix Salmon. Great name. Yeah. It was a great, great name. <laughs> he compared Megxit to Brexit in really earnestly because he said it was white working class people rejected a pure multicultural thing, i.e. Meghan and the European Union, and threw that out because they couldn't handle it. And it's very weird. There is this sort of elite sense that the, the unwashed aren't ready for multiculturalism. Yeah. And so whenever somebody like Meghan is unhappy, it's because, you know, the seething mass of the Untermensch are unable to handle her. Because she's yeah. she's mixed race. Yeah, and she's talking and she's speaking her truth. <laughs> and the thing is, is what she's I tell you what she's not doing, and again I've watched this for a long time, not just with Megan, but with sort of other areas around culture, is that what happens when you get these sort of figures who are talking about one particular area of inequality but really won't acknowledge other areas. Because one thing Megan is not talking about, and I think this is where mental health, you know, mental health is safe ground for the middle class. 
is completely safe because it appears to be individual. It appears to be an individual problem. So what they don't have to do is talk about class in that because it can be, it's an individual problem. They don't have to talk about social structure. They don't have to talk about inequality. They don't have to talk about their own privilege. And I think now this is where we're going with this because what Megan has not spoken about is the black American working class, you know, and what happens to them. She's talking about her own truth to power. I mean, for God's sake, she likened herself to the Little Mermaid. (laughs) But what she didn't do is she didn't talk about the everyday experiences of black working class people in America or in Britain. I think that point, though, is is interesting because of the relationship between the obvious elitism dripping from this discussion about Harry and Meghan from that interview itself and these allegations of, of racism, if you like, because it seems like in the reaction to it, you get a really clear sense that accusations of racism towards the public and the newspapers they read is the means through which class hatred is kind of peddled at the moment. It's the mm. way in which you can put a kind of legitimate progressive sheen on what is basically just hatred of these idiots out there. And the particular thing that came up, you know, when they first got married and ever since in the last week, especially that Britain wasn't ready for this multicultural monarchy. I mean, the monarchy was far behind the rest of the UK, let alone the working class in particular in terms of actually being genuinely integrated, genuinely multicultural and not being, you know, reliant on literally bloodline in relation to that as an institution. (laughs) It was absolutely absurd. But I think, again, that's why I find it so funny that you have so many alleged left-wingers and Republicans latching onto this with so much glee, because the reason they're attached to it is not because it's going to take down the monarchy, it's because they share those prejudices about ordinary people, which is some Republicanism to base your ideas on, really. I agree with you. And one of the things I'd like to say as well is, where did Harry take Meghan for her first public outing with the British public. Where did he bring her? He brought her to Nottingham, where I live. Where did he specifically take her? He took her to a youth club in St Anne's that he's been supporting, which I wrote a book about St Anne's. It's a council estate. Now, that is as working class as you get, because it's in the middle of a council estate, you know, that it's one of the most disadvantaged places in the UK. You know, it's got all the indicators that they love. And he decided to take her there and was welcomed. And nobody has discussed that class connection. You know, that Prince Harry has been using working class inequality for his own purposes. And nobody's talked about that. And then obviously all the jumpers on and the followers on, and particularly parts of the left, has treated this like it's some sort of working class problem around you know, Trump and around Brexit. Ella, do you want to come in? On the question of sort of exploiting things, one thing that struck me about the fallout of the Oprah interview in particular, I mean, Tom's already mentioned Piers Morgan leaving, but the whole Society of Editors, Fury, and the outrage that anyone would question or quibble with, in particular, Meghan's recollection of things, is very interesting. Some people have suggested that, you know, her and Harry are just doing this as a publicity stunt that, you know, and yes, it is kind of hard to buy them talking about being really authentic, raising chickens in California, <laughs> you know, with, you know, everyone has perfect hair and makeup as if anyone goes into a chicken group with perfect hair and makeup wearing 4,500 pound dresses. But in particular, the exploitation of the issue of mental health has been really telling 
and it speaks to the kind of blurring the attempts of, of Harry, Meghan, and as Freddie's already said, William and Kate in their move to be new royals, the blurring of public and private. Because if you're talking to someone privately on an individual basis and they said to you, I have had suicidal thoughts and you said bullshit, then you would be completely in the wrong. You'd be an asshole and you know, there'd be no question about it. But when it becomes a public political matter of a question of, you know, one, a former set of royals talking about their experience with an institution that still exists and still has power in the UK, no matter how personal, you have to be able to question that statement and that truth. It is not their truth anymore. It's potentially our truth because it's out there in the public and it's about an institution that has an impact on our lives as British citizens. And so the exploitation of mental health is this sort of, understandably so, very touchy area that you really can't go into as a means to kind of kick the royal family and kick anyone who supports them, in particular kick the British public, is really distasteful. But it's not just distasteful, it's also dangerous because this is, you know, you've already had, for example, Jamila DeMille, who I've written about before for Spikes, coming out and saying that she feels suicidal, that Piers Morgan has made her feel suicidal. Maybe she has. I mean, who knows? Maybe she has. But weaponizing these mm. things to very obviously to, for political gain is very dangerous. And you have to kind of have the balls to say, I don't care if you think I'm an awful person. If Megan told me that on the phone, I'd be sympathetic. But I'm not going to just believe her truth on the basis of it because it's now become a, a, an issue that's much bigger than her or Harry. Megan spoke for all of us when she said she wanted to kill herself halfway through that program. <laughs> I think the real thing is that once you start talking about mental health, you know, the, the whole truth thing that everyone keeps talking about does become totally subjective. And, you know, you can, Megan can say she was married in secret three days before the actual wedding, even though that's obviously complete rubbish. And Harry can say that he never went, you know, it's great that he can go cycling with Archie because he never got to do that mm. with a kid, even though there are, there's a photograph of, of him cycling with his parents. It doesn't matter. As long as he feels these things, it doesn't matter. If he doesn't feel lucky and privileged, it doesn't matter. He's, he's unhappy and we all have to feel sorry for him. There's, you know, this is, this is sort of what wokeness, very overused word, it's what it is. It's got nothing to do with truth. It's about identity and feeling. And everybody's truth is individual. Can I just say as well, you know the word wokeness? I think we're going to have to redefine that. We're going to have to talk about it in a different way because the minute you say wokeness, everybody goes, oh, Yeah, yeah right. I know. It's annoying. I haven't just cut, it's hard to come up with a better term, though. <laughs> Right-wing trope. You know, that word, the minute I hear trope, I go, oh, my God, these people have got, you know, there's no thought behind this. It's all spreading a racist trope. I'm like, gone, not interested. Also, I heard someone on, on radio yesterday, I think, saying, Blatant racial undertones. If they're undertones, they're not blatant. Right? So you can't, you can't, you can't always say this stuff is obvious if you're saying it's it's subconscious or it's not. But this is a whole new definition of of racism, and I think this comes onto the, onto the press point because, as Ella was saying, the mental health accusations have been used to kind of completely shut down discussion. The accuser is holy, you know. If you accuse them of basically pushing you to the brink of suicide in public, but the same is exactly true of the racism allegations because really. As we've talked about, no specifics were really provided. And when we're talking about the press in particular and all of the cancellations which seem to have been sparked by that, this is really based on sheer assertion and imputing of motives and asking questions, why were there so many critical stories of Harry and Meghan? Which I think the answer to that is very obvious because they're really fucking annoying. And I've said that before on this podcast, but it's still, <laughs> it's that 
question of if you can say this is my lived experience, if you can say this is my interpretation of events and you can claim the mantle of victimhood, then the accuser is holy and it's the end of the discussion. And that's a huge problem for journalism and for criticising powerful people because what the Harry and Meghan thing has demonstrated is that even the most privileged people can use that mantle very effectively. And there's a, a lot of idiots out there in the media and on the alleged left wing who will completely back them in that perspective. And what really worries me is that it's not about Piers Morgan leaving Good Morning Britain. He'll be absolutely fine. <laughs> we know all of that. <laughs> but it's the fact that this is just going to push the narrative that the press is basically rotten and needs to be brought to heel and is going to continue to send the signal that if these claims are made, even if it's by a public figure who had all kinds of interest to either misremember or even misrepresent what actually happened, you just have to shut up. And that's a really bad position to be in. It's bad for critical thinking because it means you can't interrogate anything. And for me, that is problematic because, you know, when you are in a position of little power, the only thing you have ever got is to question. That's all you can do. And if you are prevented from doing that because it, it means that you're, you know, you're a bad person, the power relationships, you know, become really exacerbated then, don't they? You know, the elite stay exactly where they are. The middle class get to hold on to their space and nothing changes. And I think this is why this is a much bigger issue than the falling out within the royal family. And it's a bigger issue than it's been previously. I think this is a much bigger issue than the, so they keep going on about, you know, the Diana interview. This is much bigger than that. Because that was about, you know, a person that was sort of dishing the dirt. This has been taken on by all sorts of power relationships around it and politics and international and global politics. You're listening to the Spikes podcast. This podcast, like all of Spikes content, is free. There's no paywalls or no paid subscriptions. We rely on the support of our loyal listeners and readers like yourself to keep producing our groundbreaking podcasts, interviews, articles, essays, and more. So if you're a regular listener to our show, please do consider donating to Spikes, or even better, becoming a regular donor. Even £5 per month can make an enormous difference. To start your regular donation today, just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spikes-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, back to the Spike podcast. We should definitely wrap up by talking about the kind of wider implications, but just on the kind of smaller stuff. I think I'm inclined to agree with Lisa that actually this cements things as they are, but does it cement the monarchy or does it damage the monarchy, do you think, Freddie? Because there's, in many ways, I, I, you know, I think it's a reinvention of it. I watched uh, the Fergie, for an article I should say, not because I'm uh, that sad, but I watched the, um, <laughs> the Fergie and Oprah interview after I watched the Meghan and Harry one in 1996. And what was amazing was it was sort of the same thing, really. There was the racial element that, that Meghan and Harry introduced that wasn't there. But otherwise, it was Oprah pretty much asking the same questions and a similar sort of format and discussion. And so, you know, I think monarchy does need these psychodramas to sustain itself to be interesting, because otherwise it would just be too boring and, and, and no one would care. But at the same time, I suppose the way in which it's a threat is... Well, it's the media element in that now Harry and Meghan can be content creators themselves. They can produce podcasts. They can, if they, and if they want to be sort of 
hostile to the monarchy, they can do it themselves. So that, that's a different element. But it's also, it is the, I don't want to use the word woke, let's call it like the church of millennial social justice thinking <laughs> that is different now. And it, it does mean that, you know, a lot of people are now, the founder of Black Lives Matter is now demanding a boycott of the monarchy. It can become a war on the monarchy in a way that it wasn't before. And so I think it, it is a, a threat to the monarchy. Whether we should care about that anymore, I don't know, because in this fiercely democratic age, once the queen is dead, the sort of semblance of monarchical dignity will go because all of her children and grandchildren have had these tabloid psychodramas. Um, it's just a soap opera. And finally, I mean, what do we think it means for in terms of shoring up the establishment? I mean, we just have seen, as we've alluded to, you know, it has been a, a launch pad for attacks on free speech. Essentially, it has given the kind of woke politics, the identity politics, uh, the royal sheen, the royal seal of, a, of approval. I mean, does anyone want to come in on that as the kind of final point? I think it really reveals the shallow nature of identity politics because the reason why the monarchy is a threat to political progress, in my view, anyway, as a Republican, is because at figurehead as, as the Queen may be, it's a symbol of the idea that there should be, as Walter Bagshot put it, this idea of the dignified, an institution that is above the average Joe or Jane that serves to either be a inspiration in the kind of way of form of reverence or as a symbol of that there are things that are higher than us, that are higher than the average Joe and Jane. And it's that undemocratic nature of it which has to be challenged. And the whole way in which identity politics or attacks on free speech and the obsession with, you know, finding racism everywhere, even in accusations made by elite Beverly Hills residents, is this fundamental idea that you cannot trust the public, that actually the people at fault here, the people who are damaging, are the readers of the Mirror's trashy pages about Meghan, are the people who go on the clickbait articles about whether she did or didn't like avocados and whether that's racist or not, and all these kinds of things. It's us who are the problem. The monarchy is perfectly happy with that, let me tell you, they, because the one thing that will threaten that institution is the idea that, that there is power and trust in the crowd, in the masses. And what the you know, middle-class proponents, as Lisa has said, of identity politics who like to look like they are being progressive and challenging are really doing is undermining the idea that there can be any real political change, any real challenge to power, any real speaking truth to power, because what you're actually doing is just shoring up the very elitist idea that both the Queen has and your most ardent anti-racist has that you cannot trust the thoughts or the speech or the potential of an ordinary person. Thanks for listening to The Spike Podcast. We'll be back next week. If you enjoyed the show, why not check out some of Spike's other podcasts in the meantime? We have The Brendan O'Neill Show, in which Spike's editor talks all about the big ideas, bad ideas, problems and controversies of life in the 21st century, all with the help of an esteemed guest. Then there's Culture Wars, hosted by Spiked columnist, stand-up comic and satirist Andrew Doyle. This podcast is the perfect antidote to the woke idiocy taking over our lives. And last but not least, you should check out Last Orders, a podcast hosted by Tom Slater and Chris Snowden. Last Orders is all about freedom, the nanny state and censorship. And there's a lot about coronavirus these days too. You can listen to all these shows with your favourite podcast provider or you can find them on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. 
Thanks for listening. See you next week. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today.